Hi, Down to Brown. Welcome back to our time together. What a time it has been. Truly, the last few years, and I will speak from a millennial perspective of someone who did turn 30 during the pandemic, of the last two years being a complete wake-up call to perhaps adulthood itself. The world seems like it is crumbling every week in a different way, in a different corner of the globe. And I have to think sometimes, you know, it has this changed, you know, is, is this how life always was? And we're just rising and being more awake to what's happening around us. I've been talking to colleagues who, for example, last week I had a teammate of mine who went on vacation for the week and was telling me how guilty they felt about being on vacation while the situation in Ukraine and Russia was going on and is going on. I told her I felt the same during our honeymoon in December when my husband and I went for our honeymoon and everyone at home was dealing with Omicron and the fears associated with another surge. It feels like at any given point, there's always a crisis going. And honestly, I, I find it hard to believe this has just happened overnight. I think this was always the way it was. And we were pretty protected and we were in our American bubble. And now we're just seeing what's happening around us. So speaking of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia... I won't pretend that I'm super educated on it. I'm not an expert. Instead, what I can provide is the perspective that I've been learning and experiencing with my partner who identifies as Russian American, connects with Ukrainian culture because it's essentially similar cultures and has family in both countries right now. He's of course, incredibly stressed about this and asking a lot of the questions that we do in Down to Brown about his identity of, you know, balancing this tension between American and Russian messages he's heard growing up, knowing that he's proud of his Russian culture, but also very proud to be an American. In fact, he recently became a citizen in 2020 and was able to vote for the election because he got his citizenship literally the day before. And so he's asking all these questions. And we're also talking about this in the lens of coming from cultures that share a history of being the colonizer and also being colonized. And it's interesting because Ukraine, physically, the people look Caucasian. They're a Christian country. And in the meantime, we see a lot of these instances happening in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and we don't see any coverage at all, or it's very limited to the news cycle at the time, like when Biden was removing the troops from Afghanistan. But where are we now with that? And the denominator here, the common denominator is the U.S. versus portraying Russia in this light. And I can't help but wonder, sorry to sound very Carrie Bradshaw, but how we are seeing a different lens to the antagonist when it is not the U.S. and when it is Russia, which has a history of contention with the U.S. And when West, the Western world sees a group being targeted that looks like them, that worships the same as them, they can see themselves more. And typically we need to see ourselves in people to empathize. That's sort of the definition of empathy. You kind of feel that sense of I'm in your pain. The empathy gap is much smaller here. And we can see that from the way it's being covered. In fact, some journalists going as far as pointing that out pretty blatantly about, you know, this isn't a third world country we're talking about. This isn't a country that, you know, this, these are the same people like you and me who are white, Christian, etc. 
if you look this up on social media, you will actually find videos of people saying this on their news channels. And it is so, to me, blatant, you know, while the coverage is important and the plight of the Ukrainians is incredibly devastating, they des- this type of attention is very deserved. It doesn't take away from the fact that there's also a world where we see this inequity in coverage and attention and resources and compassion for countries that are going through this who don't look like Americans or who don't worship like Americans, who perhaps have been socialized to be different in America from the stories that we've seen. This is why inclusive storytelling is so important. I don't mean to bring this back to Hollywood to undermine what's going on, but I say it because this is a contributing factor to how we perceive certain groups and communities and how we then inform our behaviors and actions around when we need to help them or when we need to sympathize with them, for example. How many movies have we seen or TV shows, etc., where the Russians are the bad guys or the mafia members, the spies or the accent just is inspired by them to show that it's a villain quote quote we've seen this with Daisy stories where they tend to love focusing on the poverty and the women's oppression in our communities they love to show black suffering and you know crime-ridden community stories instead of the black joy and love that also exists it's not to say that these things don't occur in these communities but it is not the entire focus and certainly it's not the brand I would say that should represent the culture stories matter. It helps inform whether we think we can imagine this group as a protagonist or an antagonist. Do we see them as the hero, the savior, or the villain? Do we see them as the main character or the side character? Do they deserve what's happening or do they not? And so that's a little bit of what I've been thinking about as I was planning for the episode release against what's happening in the world right now. So let's head on over to meet Kamala Avila Salmon and Mana Yamaguchi. Kamala and Mana are part of the inclusive content team that started at Lionsgate. In fact, if you Google Kamala, she is a big deal. She is like an Indian parent's dream come true. She is the first ever head of inclusive content for the Lionsgate Motion Picture Group. And this role is specifically aimed at developing and implementing strategies around diversity, equity, and inclusion so that the studio's film slate reflects a globally diverse audience. Because those are those diverse audiences consuming these movies. She got her BA and MBA from Harvard. She's worked across music, movies, TV, tech, and streaming entertainment. She's led marketing campaigns for Janelle Monet, The Voice, and Red Table Talk, to name a few. Now she's in LA to do this work and actually also has a podcast that she's the host of called From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. I highly recommend listening to it. I can't wait to binge it. It is geared at helping people move from just the woke feeling to clear, effective action to advance racial justice. I met Kamala when I was at Facebook, and I knew her a little bit, but I really knew Mana well. We worked closely together when I supported the Consumer Marketing Org in my role of internal communications, and Mana was just one of the most incredible people I worked with. She's not only incredibly smart and bright, but very kind, generous, open, and genuinely wants to help advance the work that she is so passionate about, inclusion 
diversity and equity. She is now um, in Kamala's team as vice president of inclusive marketing and business strategy for the same Lionsgate motion picture group. And her role is focused on transforming the approach to how we listen, reach, and speak authentically to our inherently diverse audiences. She began her career in Tokyo at Google Japan, where she worked on increasing gender diversity within the tech space in the Asia Pacific region. And most recently was at Facebook, where she helped create their new inclusive marketing vertical within the consumer marketing team. She actually talks about this more and how that kind of helped the campaign planning for any product that came out of Facebook and now Meta. So it's a very, very interesting team that she got to start help start and now the work she's doing definitely translates so this is one of my longest introductions but there's a reason why and i hope you understand i think that a lot of the things that we see right now are connected that we need to really think about what it means to show inclusive stories and to be able to tell the full 3d stories of cultures and identities when we choose to put them in such a big platform. That being said, let's head over to talk to Kamala and Mana. As we remember our fond days at Facebook, I remember before it was meta, uh, I remember <laughs> you both were quite the dream team and already rocking and rolling with diversity and inclusion work. Um, you guys started a lot of new things actually in programs at Facebook. So now you're in Hollywood. Did you ever think that you would be doing this? I mean, I can start and say, yes, it was actually always a part of my master plan. So for me, I always like, I fell in love with like television and movies very early. And I think even as a kid saw them as like a really powerful platform for messages, for impact, for culture. Like I grew, I was a Cosby show kid, different world, all of that. And just saw what it meant to see black people on screen that looked like my family and was like, I want to impact that. I want to make more of that happen. So I always had this this like drive to like diversify stories and to diversify the people who get to decide what stories we get to see because it's not just about what ends up on screen. It's really about the gatekeepers. And I think that people are so obsessed with like what happens on screen, which makes sense. But what happens on screen is because of what's happening not on screen. So, you know, it was really about pulling all of those pieces together. But I, I definitely I moved to L.A. very intentionally to to work in entertainment. Wow. Anna, on the other hand, I am actually the opposite. Well, I wouldn't say opposite, but my whole career has been in tech and big tech. So for me, going into Hollywood was definitely a very new and kind of unexpected and yet beautiful kind of surprise um, move that I made in my career. Um, I think Kamala definitely opened a lot of doors when we were working at Facebook in terms of, you know, thinking about inclusion and authentic representation in every aspect of the work that we do. And so, you know, like after working with Kamala at Facebook and then realizing the impact that we can have at a much greater scale on screen, like Hollywood was just a natural kind of next step for us. And so, you know, when the opportunity opened up for me to be able to continue to do that work with her, 
um, on the at the Lionsgate side of things in, in entertainment, it was just like a no brainer. So I'm really, really excited to be in the space now. Absolutely. in, brought her over <laughs> to the dark side, light side, <laughs> on your POV. I, it sounds like the universe worked its magic to bring you two together in this space. And I love how you teased out that difference, Kamala, about we see the screen and we ask questions, but really it's about those conversations happening in those offices. And so, so glad to see such bright minds who are passionate about it in those offices. And so I'd love to actually start off with like, since you both have experience in big tech and doing this work there, what is, how is it different and how is it the same? It's really interesting. I mean, I think some of the ways that it's the same is that when you go in um, to studios and just entertainment in general, so in tech, we're very inundated with the data around representation because in the last five years, like tech has been very explicit about like, we report our numbers every year, we show where we're failing or doing well or whatever it is. That doesn't exist in Hollywood, but people, other people have done the work and the representation issue that exists in tech also exists in entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so we, they just don't talk about it as much. So when I came in, some of the first numbers that I confronted and shared with my colleagues was sort of, did you know that our industry is like over 90% white and ter- from a leadership perspective? Did you know that it's like almost like over 85% male from a leadership perspective? Mm-hmm. That we're more white and more male than some industries that people might look at from the outside. Like, you know, like we're whiter than oil and gas. We're whiter than like banking. We're like it's actually pretty dire. So like that is actually very consistent. Mm -hmm. I think some of the things that are different though, is that like, for me, the urgency of the conversation and the potential impact of getting it right here just feels so visible because we all grow up. Most people grow up with a really strong relationship with like media they have television shows and movies that speak to them that cheer them up that make them feel happy make them feel sad and what i found is that amongst our executives there is a real drive to like want more people to be able to feel those things from the content that we make like i think we recognize that like we're not where we need to be But overall, I've seen like a real drive from all of our execs, regardless of background, for like how this is better, like we Mm -hmm. should be doing more of this. And they're really excited about the potential for change. So I think Mm -hmm. like that's really, um, that's really cool. I don't know what you think, Vana. Yeah, on the marketing side of things, I think that, you know, like, that's where I was, you know, that was where our bread and butter working at Facebook too. And I think like all of it was quite nuanced, but I think at the end of the day, you know, when we had built out the inclusive marketing team there, we were able to really push all of our consumer marketers to be thinking intentionally about, you know, authentic and diverse representation in all of the campaigns, no matter what product that they were working on, right? Like regardless of, you know, if you're a marketer for WhatsApp, if you're a marketer for, you know, Messenger or Instagram, right? there was always an opportunity to open up the door for representation in the campaigns. I think that on the other side of things, when it comes to entertainment, each kind of title that they work on, they're, they're working with the cast that they have, right? And so it's like, you can't just try to add another like black person or a Latina actor when they're not a part of the cast already. So like mm-hmm. the, the, every campaign that they work on is different. 
And so there are some like differences in terms of challenges and nuances that they have from a marketing perspective in terms of like, who are you able to bring in in front of the camera? So I would say like, there's a lot more emphasis behind what are, your, what are you doing behind the camera from a marketing campaign perspective, so. Totally. Can I add something too? Cause I think yeah. like embedded in both of our answers, I think is there is a little bit of like stage of conversation in industry is different. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I think, and like state of culture within the industry is different. So I think for those of us that have worked in tech, like we know there's a ton that's not perfect there. And I think mm -hmm. like, you know, there's so much like um, editorial space on those things, which I think is good, but the state of the conversation about just the importance of like having an authentic and honest culture where people can raise issues and talk about solutions that is very different than entertainment mm -hmm. entertainment is still a very sort of super hierarchical mm -hmm. very like apprenticeship driven and very sort of like pay your dues and then like you're paying your dues so that later on you'll be able to talk yeah word, versus tech is much more of a bottoms up culture and I like yeah. an intern at google like created gmail and like it is what it is we right know, we just don't have that here and yeah. then i also think like just the place where the diversity conversation is at one thing that's different is because you know hollywood i think is treated amongst other industries and sometimes treats itself as like more liberal more inclusive more sort of left of center mm -hmm. but what that means is that like some of the really important conversations around racism exclusion marginalization like why does the industry look like this haven't actually happened because folks have assumed that like maybe people assume that we're doing better than we are so yeah. you're starting the conversation giving yourself more credit um then maybe the work deserves or the receipts are there for so i think it's like an interesting conversation because i think that like as i said there's a ton of like goodwill good intention really positive energy but i think that like sometimes that can be um, hindered by the fact that like some of the more honest conversations about where we are and how we got here haven't always happened and so that's something that i think is really great about what we're doing at lionsgate because you know we are having the hard conversations we are talking about the reality of here's where we are here's where we've been we haven't done the things that we've said you know we we had yeah. to do and how can we actually start to do it and that's why i feel like the work feels so interesting and challenging and fulfilling because you really feel like you're in it like with people who really want to roll up their sleeves and have the awkward conversations that are critical to like making progress yeah, I mean, that, I mean, interesting is an understatement, but you did, <laughs> both of you touched on a nuance that I'd love to ask from an outside perspective is, so for context, my best friend visited me this weekend and we both met when we were in manufacturing. And mm -hmm. so we were fast forward these, you know, 10 years, she's still in manufacturing. And we were talking about, you know, it's interesting, the call for inclusion and equity is so much more behind in that industry, um, in corporate. And then you see something like big tech and we're always talking about it. We're held mm -hmm. so accountable. Um, despite the fact that to your point earlier, Koala, Hollywood is what we watch as young kids as form in during our formative years. And yeah. that honestly, to me, shapes more than a mm -hmm. campaign I watch from a tech product. Right. Absolutely. But somehow we, uh, you know, we kind of 
the excuse we get sometimes with Hollywood is, you know, that, that doesn't make money or like, you know, we have to think about like ultimately the profit, which tech does do, but how come tech do you, like, why do you think tech is held more accountable than Hollywood? <laughs> what a great question. Um, it's so interesting because it also kind of makes me think about like, what does held accountable even mean? Mm -hmm. Um, because part of it is that like, if held accountable is like being asked questions about it on a stage, then like maybe tech is held accountable. Mm -hmm. um, if held accountable is actually needing to make change or else something will happen, I don't know that they are. Yeah. And so I, I think like it sort of depends on what's your definition of accountability. But I think part of it is that like when you are more transparent about mm -hmm. your journey and where you're at, you invite more questions. And so there are reasons why lots of other industries don't publicly post their like diversity numbers and the state of it. Because once you put that out there, you are going to get more questions about what you're doing. Yeah. Versus like, if you don't put that out there, then like people kind of can't assume and they can't hold you accountable. So I actually think that that's really positive. The, mm -hmm. the bent towards transparency um, that exists within tech I think does put more pressure that will that is probably critical to driving change. So I am a component of more transparency from more places. Uh, but I also think that it also has to do with sort of scale of usage and scale of footprint, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that like, you know, if you build something that has like two thirds of the world's population actively using it every day, um, that's a very different level of like scale mm -hmm. and your average movie studio even right. though like i think you're right that the images that come out of movie studios and tv studios have tremendous like amounts of impact and maybe more impact on mm -hmm. how we see one another and how we view ourselves but like i think the conversation would be raised to that level if there was one movie studio that had two thirds of the population consuming us. Like it's just it's more um, dispersed. The yeah, impact. I see what so you it's mean. Sort of like who are we holding? Like it's like if I want to hold someone accountable in social media, like I'm talking to Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Someone accountable, and so I think it is interesting. Like as we get bigger and bigger players in entertainment, like mm -hmm. as you know, Netflix like really really scales up, and they actually have. I mean, they are a tech company at heart, so they have some of the built-in transparency, like, muscles, and they do share more, but I do think that, like, as you grow in scale, that accountability and microscope, like, kind of increases, so I, I wonder if that's a part of it, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a great guess. Mana, um, anything yeah. you wanted to share? I mean, I, I've been thinking, honestly, like when it comes to movie and television, like that has just been such a core part of our culture for a long, long, long period of time yeah. versus something like tech, something like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all of these new things are, are that, they are new, right? So they are more standout. There are things that people are noticing and like people are becoming a, mo a lot more like, um, they have a lot more scrutiny over versus something that's already just been a part of their lives since the mo moment that they were born. So it's just like that movie film, that stuff is like normal to us versus right. these newer, newer technology. You're every time something new pops up, you're like, oh, what is that? Oh, what is that? So it's like, there's more of like a curiosity. And so maybe that does also draw in a little bit more of like a accountability piece to it. 
But I would say, though, when it comes to, you know, like the entertainment space, there are more and more organizations nowadays, like UCLA, USC, Edinburgh Institute, mm-hmm. all of these, you know, mm-hmm. like organizations that are starting to kind of really elevate those numbers yeah. and really kind of start to drive that accountability. So like, I wouldn't say that it's not happening. It absolutely is. And I think right. I definitely see, I foresee Hollywood becoming like that next kind of entity or group if not already that next entity that is going to be just held held accountable just as much as the entertainment I mean the tech space yeah I it's interesting because yeah both of you I think obviously we don't know the right answer but I think media is passive whereas what we were talking about with social media it's in you engage with it you interact you share information Mm -hmm. on it um so maybe perhaps that's one of the reasons too right you can create some kind of dialogue with that even though movies you comment on and it creates a conversation yeah. too you don't have as much like agency in a movie mm-hmm. um as a personal user but when you mentioned the recent you know more people putting some energy behind research and data mm-hmm. about this do you think the pandemic has in any way shifted this conversation in hollywood especially because we see so much especially in tech and other industries like this reactive, sometimes performative response to like the summer of 2020 and George Floyd's murder. And so how has Hollywood also, have you seen like a shift? Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, come on. Um, I mean, I think it's really interesting. So I would say, yes, definitely. I've seen mm-hmm. a shift. Um, and I think back to your question about accountability, I actually do think that like there's a connection between the way that tech and social media empowers um, voices to be heard that weren't heard before. That is a big part of how accountability is coming into entertainment Mm -hmm. because the consumer's voice is getting elevated more and more. And so I think that like consumers are starting to really hold entertainment accountable. Consumers have the ability now via tech platforms to like immediately elevate something as like a priority, the right way to do it, we need to support this. And so you saw that around like Shang-Chi. They also have the ability to like cancel something and like immediately kill Mm -hmm. something as like, this is not the right way. This is inauthentic, this is whatever. And so I think there's actually an interesting intersection that I hadn't thought about before in terms of how tech is creating the platforms that then drive more accountability. Uh, because I think too, like, when you think about films and television shows and how they come to you, mm-hmm. like, people don't think a lot about, li- like, they just appear, right? Yeah. You don't think a lot about, like, who is actually behind it. And if you do, you're thinking about writers, directors, right? Producers. You're right. not thinking about company that greenlights project from said writer, director, producer. And I Mm -hmm. think that like, we're starting to see more of a focus on that. And I think to your question about how the pandemic is is impacting it. I mean, I really think it's not just the pandemic, but just the broader social changes of the last 18 to 24 months where, you know, we, whether it's like George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor, like Black Lives Matter, like, Um, all of the, you know, the campaign around really elevating the conversation around like anti-Asian hate and sentiment and wanting to like really call that out and hold people accountable. I think that it has created this environment where we're just hearing more and more from people and people are really calling out the connection between what's happening in media and what's happening in the world and that media has a responsibility to step up. Mm-hmm. And I see like studios responding to that. Um, 
Now, some of the responses may be more performative and some may be more substantive, but I do think it's undeniable that like there has been a response. And I think consumers are immediately like responding to the responses and calling out like what feels performative and what still feels like and what actually feels substantive. I think that one thing that's really interesting, obviously, like during the pandemic, everyone is hunkered down, everyone is at home, sitting on their couches, watching Netflix, consuming content. And I think it when that happened, it really kind of Netflix really changed how and what we consume. Mm-hmm. And I think that it has actually opened up the door for a lot of us to be able to get access to more and more diverse stories, more and more global diverse stories, you know, like um squid games is like a big example money heist um you know all of those things and i think like those types of content because of a a streaming service like netflix has been a gate opener if anything about and like kind of started to normalize being able to see different types of um cultures being represented and more and more diverse actors actresses being featured um um, in that sense, and in, in the American mainstream, which is really interesting. So I would say, I think like that's definitely something worth noting in terms of like, mm-hmm. that is also increasing, you know, the desire from a consumer perspective in terms of like hearing, getting access to and hearing and seeing more of those diverse um, actors and stories. Absolutely. And earlier you mentioned something about, you know, like with the cast, you can't simply add someone, which apparently, and just like that, didn't get the memo on that because they just like decided to blank it, like, you know, slap <laughs> like, on a we few. We can add everybody. <laughs> with like no story arc that closed for some of them. It was a mess in my personal yeah. opinion. Yeah. But I was trying to understand like, what, is there a way to win? So basically, for example, like with and just like that, on one hand, I'm so happy to see, you know, for myself, for example, a South Asian woman, she's, you know, sex positive, she's confident, independent. I love that. At the same time, the storyline was so poor for her and the character development and her just, it was used as a prop, it felt like, to reinforce Carrie, which is the story of every character in that show. But I'm like, what can make me happy? Like, is it the fact that I can see myself or like, you know, they have to be in depth too. And does Hollywood have that? Are they there yet where they can also like cater to the fact that they're representing, but also in a way that's thoughtful? Or do I have to be like, I should just be happy with this? You do not have to just be happy with <laughs> anything that you're not happy with. Like, I think let's start there. I think sometimes there yes. is this feeling of like, oh my God, I can't win. Like, I can't satisfy you people. And it's like, <laughs> what does that even mean, right? Like we get to like comment on the content that is coming at us and talk about if we feel like it's authentic or not. To me, it's not a, it's not binary. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of like, are there like, do I understand and appreciate the intention that the creative team behind and just like that had to recognize that they had a white centered canvas, that they had a white centered canvas in New York City, which didn't make sense then, right? This is not all about like, all of a sudden the world is like, those people yeah. should have been there in the story in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so when you recognize that, it's like, okay, I can give you some points for recognizing that like, you can't show up in 2022 with that white centered canvas again and feel like it's okay. But I still can say like, but didn't totally get there with the right yeah. right? And I think part of it is that sometimes I feel like people are so, they just want to get their cookies so bad. They just want to be like applauded. 
Mm-hmm. And so when you don't just applaud, like, you know, uncritically, it's like, see, this is why I don't bother trying. And it's like, that's not the answer, right? Yeah. It's like, why can't you be critiqued and still feel like mm-hmm. good about trying? Right. Like, we're not going to get there via like um, perfect actions only. We're going to get there via imperfect actions too. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to do on our team is have those conversations around the films that we're making where we can recognize the intent of the creators. We also point out like there are gaps in inclusion. There are gaps in representation that we should fill. But mm-hmm. then we try to t- arm them with the information and, and share with them like, and here's how to do it authentically. And like, yeah. here's the best way to make that character. Cause I sometimes will say like, we need a Latina character here, mm. but I don't just say like, just like make them Latina and like, that's it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's then we need to have a conversation about, all right, what would need to change in the story to make that the case? We look at like tropes and stereotypes. We look at like depth of, of character and true character arcs. We look at agency, empowerment, independence from white characters. Like all of those things are really important because that's how you make sure that like your good intention doesn't fall flat. Mm-hmm. But I think like for, you know, if, if perfection is the goal and like to put something out that will not be critiqued as the goal, then like you're always going to feel as if like it's not worth doing it but i would ask the person sort of like well what is your true intention if your true intention is real inclusion opportunity Mm -hmm. like improvement then like and just like that can exist right Right. recognize that like almost there Mm-hmm. I get there. I prefer this to the all white canvas that you had. Right. And the next time, like, as I don't know if there will be a season two or not, like, hopefully this feedback doesn't result in, because here's my fear, that the feedback could result in, like, see, it doesn't work. Yank all those characters. Right? Right. And it's like, I thought Sarita was a fantastic actress and Seema was a great character. Mm-hmm. Like, but she just needed more and she deserves more. And like maybe in a future iteration, she can get more. Yeah, definitely. So actually you had mentioned that example of like, let's say you're trying to portray a Latinx character. I, I would love to actually understand what is happening in your roles. Like what is your day-to-day, your part in the process of a movie being written to being filmed? I can start and then I would love for Mana to kind of talk about too, like what happens once the movie's in the can and we're trying to market it and we're trying to, you know, make sure that we're representing those underrepresented characters in the best way in the campaign. Yeah. So I think like just from the creative side, so script comes in, we read it, we provide our notes from an inclusion perspective. So we might say like this, this script reads as very white neutral, right? White as neutral. And like, mm-hmm. we need to... in insert more diversity into the slate like we are completely missing lgbtqia characters or like whatever the case may be then we actually like sit with the development team and like at times with the filmmakers and talk about like where are those opportunities for better inclusion so we may look at like gender 
mm-hmm. and say like, great, we have women in the story, but like the Bechtel test is not being met. They don't have agency. They're not mm-hmm. empowered. So like, is there a way for them to make more decisions in this story? Is there a way for them to really drive plot? Is there a way for them to like, you know, whatever the case may be, or like, great, you have an LGBTQIA character, but right now, like their queerness is the only distinctive piece of their character identity. Right. Like they don't have a personality. They do, they're not connected to the plot. How could we change that? And oftentimes, like, you know, the best inclusion related notes are the notes that make the story better, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not just like, so if you feel like there is, you know, an inclusion oriented note that you're just executing because you feel like, well, I should represent people or I should mm-hmm. have this character there, that's probably a good sense that like, it's probably not going to be on the right track. And maybe that is what happens sometimes when we see shows or movies that we feel that feel performative to us. Mm-hmm. It's because the inclusion is not making the story better. Right. Um, and so how is it making the story better? So like those are the types of conversations that we have. And then once we are sort of like getting into the marketing window, this is where like, you know, Mana's work really begins. And so I would love for her to talk about like, so what happens once we hopefully get it as right as we can on the creative side? Yeah, so from a marketing perspective, what I usually do is I take a lot of those notes that Kamala had mentioned about the script, and then we kind of put a marketing lens on it. So let's say, for example, like they'll say, you know, this movie has no creative team diversity. If that's a note that I see kind of coming up in a film, what I'll do mm-hmm. is I'll start I'll start preparing our marketing teams to be thinking about, okay, well, where are the areas within the campaign where we can actually bring in more of those diverse POVs that we're missing from the creative team side? So as an example, you know, let's make sure that we're bringing in a black female photographer on set to, to, to capture all the images. Right. Let's also make sure that we're bringing in an LGBTQIA agency to help lead the national PR campaign. Let's make sure that we're bringing in, you know, what, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of really noticing what are those areas of opportunity that, you know, weren't elevated in the development side of things that we can actually really pull through from the marketing oh. perspective. And another way to think about it too is, you know, like we'll notice that, okay, I'll look at the notes and say, okay, there were a lot of tropes and stereotypes that we're noticing within the script. So then, you know, once the film is developed, when the, once the, the film is, you know, developed and we take a look at it, like making sure that we're raising awareness within the marketing team of like, there are these specific scenes or lines or the, this like potential like trope that we're noticing across the film. And so making sure that we're not like over, like overemphasizing in those themes in our actual marketing campaign assets. So like, let's say for example, we're noticing the token black friend trope in this movie. Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that like, if we're gonna be leveraging that character in our campaigns and our assets, that they're showing up in a way where they do have agency and when they ha- where they are a character of consequence and they are pushing the narrative forward rather than just kind of like having a flash of them on the screen. So like we help to kind of help our marketers really think about be one, being aware of like what, what are the opportunities and what are the potential pitfalls when it comes to inclusion in the film and then really kind of get smart about how it shows up within the marketing campaign. I had no idea that it was, of course, like I'm a plebeian watching the movies and shows, right? But the fact that there's a supplementary, like supplementary, like development process that's going on that you just described, because we typically see, and we probably give more credit to the actors than all of the team that's behind it, right? You see a good Mm -hmm. line and you're like, oh my gosh, that was so good, Charlize Theron. (laughs) And you're like, obviously she didn't write that line. There's someone behind it. 
Um, but that's really interesting to see. And I think I'm seeing it a little bit. I've noticed more with, you know, the way that we are marketing a little bit on more with like social media and like people are tagging with like the bachelor franchise and like making it doing pop-up events. And like, it just seems a lot more creative. And so maybe those are, it seems like those are opportunities where you can play up some of that more. Yep. Absolutely. Maybe I can tell you a little bit just about like the overall kind of practice of inclusive marketing. Um, So I think like this is definitely a newer term within the Mm -hmm. industry, like even within tech, I think even though big tech might be a little bit further along the, like down the line in terms of how they do it. But um, really, you know, like the big question that I get often is like, what is inclusive marketing? How is it different from traditional marketing? How is it different from multicultural marketing? And so like what I always kind of tell people is that like inclusive marketing is like the new overarching umbrella that encompasses like marketing as a whole, as well as like multicultural marketing. And so, you know, like oftentimes when you think about traditional marketing, you're marketing to a general market. Mm -hmm. Um, And then within that general market, there's kind of like a a tack on of the quote unquote multicultural like in language market that people focus on. And typically there's like a separate marketing team. And when a product or in this case, a film or a title is really deemed quote unquote culturally resonant for a specific group, that is when a multicultural brief is created um, that's attached to the side, to the, to the main central brief. So it's kind of seen as like the side brief, but the whole idea of inclusive marketing is really putting the diverse audiences at the center of our own, of all of our campaigns, not as a side brief, because what we do know, the data is showing that, you know, our general audience is already quite diverse and it's going to become more and more diverse, you know, every single year to the point that, you know, the minority is indeed going to become the majority. So we need to be really thinking about how is the diverse audience, you know, at the center of all of our marketing briefs and how do we make sure that we're being really intentional about who they are and how we're reaching those audiences authentically. Um, so that's kind of just, it, it's really a, a mindset shift in terms of how we approach our audiences. It's not yeah. a new type of marketing. Um, so that's kind of just how overall inclusive marketing is working. And then in terms of how that applies to the film industry, you know, it's everything that I just talked to you about, which is, you know, like being aware of you know, what are the tropes and stereotypes that we're seeing in the films? You know, what are the opportunities for us to be more inclusive? How can we bring in more diverse vendors and agencies to really work on these Mm -hmm. campaigns, um, no matter how non-diverse the title is? Um, And also really kind of from a research perspective, helping our marketers to be thinking about like, okay, who are the audiences that we're overlooking right now? What, like, we need Mm -hmm. to get more specific, right? When we say uh, male audience that's over 35 plus, like, that's, that's kind of where a lot of people stop and add a little bit of like psychographics into that. But mm-hmm. I think what people aren't thinking about is like, okay, well, who are we not talking to? Or like, who is missing within this group that we need to be getting even like deeper into um, right. looking like like looking at? And so, you know, I'll look at an actor or we'll say like, here, here's a here's an action movie, assuming your audience automatically is male 25 plus, right? right? But then it's like, okay, if you look at this actor, there might be actually a really big API audience following that nobody's even looking at. That's an untapped mm. opportunity right now. So let's bring the information, the data in and really educate ourselves around that so we can get even smarter about how we're reaching this diverse audience. Totally. And I'm asking you a lot about US residency, but I can imagine what you're describing. That's when you're thinking about a global audience. There could be a country that's like, we love Angelina Jolie or something, right? So like, Mm -hmm. or Will Smith, India loves Will Smith. So, you know, (laughs) it's very interesting to see like 
that type of nuance. And it's so encouraging to hear that this is happening from the beginning. I always thought like maybe old school or maybe this is incorrect, but that it would happen after the movie is kind of like in the stage of, all right, now how do we share the word? But the fact that you're proactively engaged from the inception of the script mm -hmm. is awesome to hear. And I can yeah. only imagine like what you're working on now is going to shift in the next 10 years entirely. Oh, yeah. Like Absolutely. I, I mean, I was just going to say that to me, that is like, uh, that's a feature, not a bug of inclusion mm -hmm. work that the bar mm -hmm. will continually be raised. And yeah. I think sometimes what we hear from like what you might hear from some colleagues who are a little bit more, have more trepidation around this work is like, sometimes there's this feeling of like, it's never enough. Like, you know, yesterday it was this and now it's that, like, I can't win. Right. And it's like, that is not bad. Right. Yeah. Like as we include more people, more blind spots will be revealed and we will realize yeah. that we also include them too. Mm -hmm. Like how great, like what a great problem to have where it's like, I just have to keep including more and more people. Like, why is that a problem? Absolutely. I think that's where the fragility piece comes in where you're like, yeah. if you're wrong, mm -hmm. it's okay. Like I think yep. people of color make mistakes all the time. We're on our journey. That's oh, part yeah. of the reason totally. why I started this podcast is, you know, the South Asian population, we're learning a lot more about how yeah. we play a role in American society. And so, I mean, I, I think about even like, um, one thing I was talking about with my friend, for example, is multiracial identities and how those stories even shift. And that's something mm -hmm. that I have not even thought about in the sense, I realized like my kids will be multiracial. Their problems will mm -hmm. be very different. So for example, Euphoria, love the show, worships Zendaya, but it's very interesting to see, like, I would love for, like, I, I always, um, I've been beginning to wonder, like, what is it like to show the dynamic of Zendaya now being raised with her addiction with a black mother? How would the dynamic have shifted if she was being raised by her white father and it was switched, right? Like, so those conversations yeah. I'm hoping to see more and more um, and I think we will because yeah. our population is shifting in that way too. Right. So I'm curious, like what kind of trends are you seeing? Like, what do you think will be so vogue and outdated? You know, the stuff we're talking about now will be old school in 10 years. Ah, I forgot mm, my crystal ball at home. <laughs> I have it in my other room. Twist. <laughs> I mean, I think that what you're saying is really interesting. So one thing is that, um, you're like not the first person by a long shot who's talked to me a lot about sort of like the missing biracial stories or missing multiracial stories. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's probably going to become a bigger thread. The way that Hollywood has high has handled biracial identity in the past is basically, well, which group does this person most look like? And, mm -hmm. and like, we'll just cast them as such. And so part of it is that like, you know, one conversation that I think is really coming up right now is colorism and colorism and biracial identity are not interchangeable because right. there are people who have two black parents and are just extremely light because mm -hmm. both of their black parents are light skinned, but there are other people who are lighter skinned and identify as black because they have one black parent and one white parent. Mm -hmm. I think that what we've done in the past is that like, we've just operated on the quote unquote one drop rule where it's mm -hmm. like, if you have one drop of black blood, you are black and we will cast you as a black person. We don't even think about like your biracial identity. Like we will cast you with two black parents and keep it moving. Right. And so what that misses is one, I think to your point, like some of the nuance and richness that probably could be mined creatively from what it's like to have 
two parents from two different cultures and like how that would inform how you were like raised. But then the other like side effect of that is that it facilitates the centering mm-hmm. of like lighter skinned people as the conduits for black stories, as the conduits for Latina stories. And so when you ask an average American to like, what if you say like, think about what a Latina looks like, they yeah. think about Jennifer Lopez, they don't think about Tessa Thompson, even though like she's also Latina, they don't think about mm-hmm. Zoe Saldana, they don't think about Domingo Coleman, who is like right. a very dark skinned, like, cause he is cast in Hollywood as a black person, right? I don't know mm-hmm. how often he's been cast as an Afro-Latino, which mm-hmm. is what he is, right? Right. And so I think that like we are reinforcing problematic and exclusionary narratives when like, you know, and that doesn't mean that like you can only be this, like if you are you have this family background, you can only ever be cast in this family context. But I think the reason why those conversations come up is because of the scarcity of the full experience being shown And to add to that, I think a little bit, there's also like this other kind of other conversation around just like the bicultural stories. I think Mm -hmm. that aspect is still something that's like quite, um, is still a new concept. And, you know, even I, even though I am, you know, Japanese American raised by two Japanese immigrants in the U.S., I have always kind of grappled with, you know, the whole like identity of being Japanese or being American and like maintaining my and appreciating the Japanese culture versus like the American culture and like at at what time like how do I assimilate to American culture but how do I also like honor my Japanese culture and I think you know like Lahari you and I have talked about this a lot too but like seeing that I still don't see a lot of that I think it's starting to become a thing within like TV and film but it's still a story that is missing Mm -hmm. and so you know going back to your original question of like five ten years down the line I think that is still going to be something like if anything even more so something that people would need to be like up leveling and thinking about and talking about including in the stories because we don't see enough of it now I didn't see any of it growing up hence you know why I struggled a lot with my own identity Um, and I think that that's something that's just going to be something that we need to continue thinking about absolutely now that's Part of the reason why sometimes I keep rewatching Always Be My Maybe, because I'm like, it's so relatable to immigrant parents in San Francisco. Yeah. And like, it's just yeah. something that even though I don't identify as their identity, but like, it, it just feels like I can connect with it. Right. Yeah. But mm-hmm. actually, that is something that I wanted to get into, which can also become dangerous territory and controversial, which is when we start to relate to other identities and cultures, but so much that we start to appropriate which could take hours to talk about. But specifically Mm -hmm. in this space, I wanted to talk about, you know, recently Aquafina has been in the news because she was nominated for an NAACP award and people have critiqued in the past, like her tendencies to kind of imitate a black scent or also her behaviors. And this is something I see in the Daisy community all the time. A lot of the humor I'm trying to, sometimes I cringe, like I forget the actor's name, but it never have I ever. He's the teacher that now the like cousin um, Kamala is falling for. And I'm like, why are you acting? Like just, there's like a, you could tell that there's an imitation going on. Lily Singh does the same and she's been critiqued. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like I would love to see more of these voices obviously, but not in a way where we also say, well, it's cool to adopt like this type of black culture behavior and then do it. So I'm curious, like, have you encountered this conversation in your work? 
And how can we still be funny and still be out there without having to fit into this type and respect the cultures and identities separately? I, this is this is such a good question. And you know what? I I don't know if it's it like, first of all, the way that Aquafina has been dealing with this whole situation is not okay. I, mm -hmm. I think she definitely could have been responsive. She could respond this in a way, it respond to this in a way that is much more respectful um, yeah. and actually apologize about the situation. But I don't know if it's because people are doing it because they want to fit in or to, to be cool. But I think, I think it's, you know, because people naturally just, they want to reflect what they're seeing in mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, culture is so multifaceted and it's super fluid. Um, so I think what happens is that people tend to just forget or fail to recognize that all of these this culture comes from a lot of subcultures and and actually the mm -hmm. fact that a lot of it is heavily influenced by black subculture like music hip-hop art yeah. food, sports everything um and I think that the issue with Aquafina and some of these other celebrities are you know who are being accused of culturally appropriating black culture is that they're they're, they're failing to recognize that that fact that every aspect of the mainstream culture that they're seeing is really coming from that subculture um and that's problematic because it, it's mm -hmm. the only aspect of the culture that they are appropriating instead of supporting all of black culture. Yes. So it's, it's very surface level. Um, and, and to me, it just looks like they're just borrowing the most popular parts of for their own personal gain while ignoring like the larger issues like anti-black racism, state endorsed violence against black, black people. Like all of these things are just not, are being completely ignored and just for personal gain. Um, but I would say that, you know, like, I think what we're starting to see, like I mentioned earlier with, you know, platforms like Netflix really kind of opening up the door for more and more like global content. I think what mm -hmm. we're starting to see is that the global culture is influencing American mainstream more. So even things like, you know, seeing things like, again, Squid Games and, and noticing BTS is really becoming a thing. I think like, you know, even like speaking of language, like Duolingo saw a 76% mm -hmm. increase in Korean learners because of wow. after Squid Games was released. And so I think like, that's just wow. an interesting signal in terms of like how other subcultures are really starting to get more recognized in the mainstream as well. Um, but again, like, I think what we need to always maintain is just like knowing and recognizing where it always comes from um, rather than just kind of like using it for own personal gain. Yeah, I add to that, I mean, it's so, this is such a tricky conversation because, you know, the line oftentimes between appreciation and appropriation, like for many people just feels like so thin. And sometimes again, in that like haste of like, it's too hard. Like you'll hear people say like, so I just can't appreciate any culture that's not mine. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. No, right? Like it's not binary, but I think like we see it on TikTok and other platforms where a lot of times white creators will go viral copying something that was originated by a black mm -hmm. creator they don't name them they don't mention them they don't share proceeds with them they they just like and so that's what makes it feel like exploitation right it feels icky right and yeah. so I think like part of the conversation is like what people and critics um people who've been really pushing aquafina on this question have been saying like the reason why it doesn't feel right is that it feels like you know we can look at interviews where you put this accent on and taken it off like it's a jacket like sometimes yeah it off right like and so are you really truly embedded in the culture and also 
really vocal about like and showing an up ally mm-hmm. and like showing up in all the places and do, or is it just like a cool sounding way to speak and yeah like, using that to like to come into the industry and look distinctive you know when there are places where like you know that all those same mannerisms can be used to keep us out but it, it brings you mm-hmm. in right Right. I think like, I think about Issa Rae's book where she wrote about, there's a chapter entirely about like, where did all the black shows go? And she Mm -hmm. said like growing up in the nineties for millennial kids, there were so many shows that we were watching. Um, and that, you know, and I think back to that time, so I'm speaking for millennials and like, you know, only, but in that time, I remember watching Fresh Prince with my family. That was the only show we were kind of allowed to watch that felt safe for them. And Mm -hmm. I felt better about like, this is a non-white family that I can relate to yeah. and like some of the values and just their dynamics. And so of course, when you start to watch that, you might be shaped by it and you might think like, that's, that's how you should act. Like that's cool. But the controversy is what you talked about, Kamala and Mana is like that it's hypocritical to then say, I'm going to adopt it. Like I, I see a lot of South Asian men say the N word. There's a lot of appropriation of the culture mm-hmm. And they don't show up though at the same time for these moments. And that's exactly yeah. what like got me like all fired up in 2020 is like it's really convenient. Like even Priyanka Chopra, I used to love her, but she's really perpetuated these stereotypes in her films and yeah. now has kind of conveniently been like, but now I'm in Hollywood. And so mm-hmm. it's a little different. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of like, sometimes it's like when you grow up, I get it. There's also that desperate need like to have, if you're ethnic, like that identity connection with someone that's not white but are we just starved like you know and and maybe you know our future Mm -hmm. generations will see more representation and do less of that yeah I also wonder how much is because we're craving that and we don't have it so therefore yeah I mean that's a good point like I think it's not justification by the way no no no. I I, I (laughs) what you're saying like because it's very interesting like I was looking at the Academy Award nominations for instance and I think that like it's like Hollywood needs the reminder that like not all people of color are black. Yeah. Or like the only people of color that are that matter are black people because it's like, there's just still complete invisibility, erasure, lack of like, you know, opportunities for people that are Latina and API. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we just see it again and again and again. And I think that like, you know, it is too convenient to like make the conversations purely black and white mm-hmm. because like we're certainly not doing enough for like really embracing and elevating like black voices. Um, but we are doing like nothing next to nothing for like non-black voices of color. And like, what is that about mm-hmm. too? And like, we can't get a pass on like doing better on racial like inclusion just by including more black people. And yet we're also still not including enough black people. To, so it's like, it's right. very nuanced. Right. And none of it is like, and so I think that like the problem is that the solution is multivariate and people yeah. want to think about it as like, just tell me the one thing I can do to make it okay with you guys. And yeah. Like, that's not the answer. You and know. as someone of color, you're like, I wish it was that simple, boo. Like, exactly. It's not like that at all. Right. Yeah. If there was one thing, we would have done it already. But they had also, like, when you include, like, API people, don't call it a foreign film, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's that a whole other conversation. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. The last question I had was, I mean, honestly, talking to you both before this conversation, I was feeling very angsty about Hollywood. I feel a little bit better after talking to you both because there, okay, there seems like hope. 
we're and working this- on it. Yeah. <laughs> so as consumers, I'm curious because we're not seeing this the way that you are. Yeah. How can we push for better DEI in the film space? Is it critiquing? Is it calling things out on Instagram? How useful is that? Is it how productive is it? Oh man, it's a good question. I mean, I think we need all of it. So I think that people should absolutely continue to use their voices. Um, but I also think that like people need to like use their eyeballs and use their wallets. Mm-hmm. So like support things that you think like, I guess here's what I would say. Like, I believe that we're going to have to do some things that are imperfect to get to a more perfect place. I think cause, cause we have to start walking before we can run. Yeah. And so I would say, I think it's totally okay and very valid to critique, raise your voice, say like, this is not all the way there, but I also like, I like don't fully withhold my support until it's like perfect. And like, it's a really fine balance to like, if there are things that you like about like what's happening, like be vocal about that too. Like, I think that like social media is such a place where like mostly the negative comments get amplified. Yeah. Um, And so when there are things that are happening that are positive, like really raise those up, elevate those up. Like, you know, when you see something like whether it's a theatrical movie or a streaming show or movie, like really try to support that in numbers. If you feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is the direction we need to be going in because that is always the argument that we are fighting where it's like, well, they're not going to show up anyway. Yeah. And so like, we actually have to show up, Um, but it doesn't mean we have to give imperfect things a pass. We can still talk about what needs to be better. Yeah. You know, when we truly, if we believe in the creator, if we believe in the, like the progress, like, and we like, we think there's things that are worth calling out as positives. Like, I think we should do that too. Yeah. Are people listening when we respond this way on social media? People are absolutely listening. Like, you know, when, when things get to like that fever pitch and conversations really start like thriving around certain pieces of content, like usually there's either someone like me who's like bringing it to the executive room and saying like, we need to talk about this mm-hmm. or it's happening organically just because the conversation becomes too loud. And right. so like, you know, I think that it is really important and those voices do get heard and the people inside studios and networks and platforms like who want the change to happen are desperate for those conversations to bubble up because that is ammunition for me. Like I can talk about how I think that yeah. we should do X, Y, and Z, but if I can also say like, and the consumer is asking for it, look mm-hmm. at like the conversation that's been like, you know, that's, that's thriving around like this topic. I think that also is just more ammunition for me to use to get like more change done. Absolutely. I'm hearing a lot of math in this too, right? Like the number of conversations and the aggregate and the volume of it, the number of dollars that we contribute to that, right? Like one of our um, previous guests is uh, in a film called Indian Sweets and Spices. And she's like, encourage us by paying dollars. Like please pay and rent for the movie on Amazon, go to the theaters. If if you're not feeling safe, do rent it. But um, it does seem like it's a bit of a numbers proof, like database. It's business. Right? It's yeah. a business at the end of the day, right? And totally. so we're constantly making the case that like this is better business. So like audiences showing up be very helpful. All right, ladies. We are about to start the chup chup round, which in Hindi translates to hush hush. So this is where we kind of ask some fun questions. You have to answer immediately what occurs to you. And are you ready? 
Absolutely not, but let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm going to actually, you have to be prepared too. So I'm going to like fire and say the name. And so it's not always going to be in like order. So sometimes it's Mana, sometimes it's Kamala. Oh man. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I've I've never been, I literally sweat. This is so good, by the way. I love everything about this. Thank you. So Kamala. Target allows you to get a lifetime supply of one thing. What is that item? Rosé. Oh. <laughs> is that wrong? That is the best. Wow, of all the things. Of all the things wow. that Target sells, I definitely just said rosé. Wow. I do not have a drinking problem, America. I just like wine. All right, specific brand? I'm, I'm adding a question in here. Yeah, <laughs> I know, you're really pushing me. I mean... There's so many that I love. Like maybe I'd go Whispering Angel. Like there's a lot mm. that's good. Mm. Okay, you you're on another level. So <laughs> extremely Mana. fancy broad. That's what you. Mana, how about you? Uh, birthday cards. <laughs> birthday card. Oh, that's good. You're because you are I such am... a thoughtful person. I am. <laughs> I am literally always looking for birthday cards and I'm like, why don't I just stockpile on it? So, and birthdays come every year. Oh my God. It's so precious. I'm like, (laughs) no matter how many items you gave me, if you gave me 50 items, I would never arrive at birthday cards. (laughs) (laughs) I should have gone with rosé or wine. You're thinking about others, Mana. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) We make a great pair. (laughs) You want to take a quick dance break to shake off stress. What's the song, Mana? Uh, WAP. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is that true? Go with the first answer. Okay, it was the first. Okay, it was the first song. (laughs) It was the first song that just came up at the top of my head. Well, actually, maybe I might. I might take a dance break to that. Oh um, very empowering. <laughs> very. Like I'm gonna keep it on the Meg train because I was gonna go with um, Beyonce and Meg on Savage. Ooh, uh, good one. Yeah, one of the best remixes ever. Yeah. So no, for sure. I think you need to Which share a rose me. for the WAP dance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. All we right. have like a, a team playlist too, Lahari. It's so funny that Kamala yeah. and I and like a bunch of people on our team, we like made a playlist. WAP is definitely on there. Savage okay. is definitely on there. on there. There's a lot of a lot of good Big songs. Big queen energy. Oh yeah. Love that. <laughs> you need it. You need it. Um, if you had to give each other a high school superlative, what would it be? So Kamala, I will start with you. Oh my gosh, this is the best. Um I mean, the first thing that came to mind, honestly, was like, she's going to hate this. You can't speed up like that. She's going to hate this, but <laughs> it's so true. And I stand by it. Like, nicest person in the class. Like, I feel like. Aww. She's a fave. And like, I don't mean nice, like a wallflower. I just mean yeah. nice because nice is nice. <laughs> How do you I'm feel disarming. about that, Mana? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to stir the pot a little. <laughs> I love it. How do you feel about I'm, being nice? I'm good with it. I, yeah. I got, I on my, my class superlative was best musician, I think. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. You have to have the pleasure of. That's true. I haven't, I haven't serenaded you. Will you crack something out? Can I get a song? Can I get a little violin? Can <laughs> One I... day. Okay. All right. You look very serious in your violin shows. Stop in front of her. My face. My expressive face. I'm here putting on my dues. Clearly, it's not something that comes in the first six years of a relationship. So. <laughs> Try harder. <laughs> really stick around. Mana, what's yours? Um. Uh, okay. I would say most likely to be president I knew you were of the United States. That. Oh, <laughs> that's a big one. No big you deal. You know what's okay. funny? That I did get that surprise in, in my yearbook. <laughs> I knew you were going to say I'm not. Like, of course. <laughs> I know Kamala. Of course. Of Here's course. what's the funny thing about it. I can't be because of our xenophobic constitutional rules about having to be a natural born citizen. Oh, and I was born in Jamaica. And so people have asked me like, oh my God, have you ever thought of working in politics? I'm like, I love media, so not really. Yeah. But when I was younger, <laughs> I realized very quickly that I was like, no, because I can't get the top job. I'm not going to pursue any career path that oh has gosh. a guaranteed ceiling. Yeah. It's like, I can't be president. So like, it's such a missed okay. opportunity for us. <laughs> can we talk about like making superlatives more inclusive too because i mm -hmm. feel like um a lot of these superlatives feel so i don't know i don't know what the word is but like so like typical mm -hmm. and you know i feel like there should be something that celebrates more of like our cultural backgrounds whether it's like you know like culture i don't know I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like pop culture cultivator or like someone yeah. who was like, um, I think, who was, I think I was talking to like my cousin who was saying like their superlatives were more focused around like um, somebody who is most likely to like be the most persistent in the face of challenges or like, you oh, know wow. what I mean? Yeah. I was like, I want, I wanted stuff like that to be our superlative, not like who has the best butt for like, yeah. Who has oh, like you know your the best school lab. really went there, huh? Oh yeah, say, no, I did not have one of those in my school. Yeah, but no, weird. but you're right. We they're very superficial. They're very yeah. like popularity exactly. superficial. Best smile, yeah. Best smile. Um, let's yeah. not knock on that because I did win that in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. Okay, all of our superlatives are out there now. <laughs> there we go. I just gave my own. Um, what was the most fangirl moment you had at your job? in Lionsgate. I'm going to go on with Mana again, since it's unexpected. Uh, okay, Vivica A. Fox. Oh. She was just so gorgeous and hilarious and so grounded and honest. And in the short, like 30 minutes of a meeting I had with her, I was just like, I want to be just like you. Oh my gosh. Amazing. How about you, Kamala? <sighs> Probably probably Carrie Washington. You met Carrie Washington? Being on a Zoom with her and Sterling K. Brown when we were working on a, a project. Um, yeah. And I love them both. Yeah. And they're so smart and so nice. And yeah. I, I remember I said something and like 
Carrie laughed and I was like, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I am <Exit> good. <laughs> You've peaked. I don't know why I you're know. working. <laughs> I didn't go in the next day. So. <laughs> A uh, more thoughtful question. What do you rely on to keep learning and relearning about DEI? We had talked about it in our conversation. Mm-hmm. No one's perfect. So what is yeah. the thing that keeps inspiring you? Kamala. Honestly, it's my team. Mm-hmm. Like they keep me on my toes. Like I think that we're just blessed with a fantastic team. <laughs> yeah. And so like, I feel like the questions that we ask, the bar just keeps getting raised. I learn new things. I learn new ways to think about things. I rethink things that I thought about before. And like, I just think there are so, so many reasons why people should like desperately chase as diverse a team as possible. Mm-hmm. To keep them on their toes. But this is one of the other reasons. Like, it's just impossible to stay static and stagnant when you have people around you that are different from you because mm-hmm. they just think about things differently. And so one of the many things that I feel like people who have like homogenous teams like miss out on is just that continuous learning. Yeah. Mana, do you want to add to that since you have the same That was going to be my answer. But in addition to that, I would definitely say you know, just listening to a lot of podcasts like Down to Brown, for example. What? <laughs> quick, pl- quick plug. Um, and also Kamala's podcast. If you if you um, haven't heard uh, the podcast from Woke to Work, it is mm-hmm. incredible. So I think like those types of content where you have you know trailblazers, trailblazers, leaders who are really kind of like leading the conversation in this space is I'm always like learning new things, new perspectives. Um, so I would say just like more and more consuming more and more podcasts and media. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Podcasts have been a great way for people to also have a platform that didn't and, yeah. right, you know, pr- portray voices that haven't been. So um, that's a really great answer. Um, you both nailed this. This is the <laughs> end of the rapid fire. I'm so sorry because we were having so much fun. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time for the podcast too. We're like, I'm so grateful. It was fantastic to learn from you both. Thank Thanks you. for the opportunity. Thanks yeah. for creating the platform. Very, very excited.